Welcome everyone to the first episode of the Scared Tip Horror Podcast of 2024. I'm your host, Doug Plumatello, a filmmaker from Connecticut and the writer and director of the upcoming feature-length film, Halloween Candy. In today's show, we have a really special guest. Joe Bendelli is a writer, director, and producer who is best known for his work producing the Hell House LLC series of films. He was also the director of the Paranormal Activities documentary, Unknown Dimension. Joe has a wealth of knowledge of filmmaking, and in this interview, Joe gives some very valuable advice to upcoming filmmakers. He also gives a few interesting behind-the-scenes facts about the making of Hell House LLC. So sit back and enjoy our interview with Joe Bendelli. Welcome to the Scarecif Horror Podcast, Joe. How are you been, my friend? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's good to see you. I haven't seen you in a while, so I'm excited to talk some horror with you. Absolutely. How has your new year been, your 2024? New year's good. Um, spent some time on the couch, was sick for a bit, starting to recover now. So uh, looking forward to a lot more fun this year, letting a lot more. I'm getting back into the director's seat a little bit more this year, so, uh, so it should be a fun 2024. All right. Got, got big plans already. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. Very excited. So, Joe, a lot of people know you and a lot of people know your work. You are the producer of the Hell House LLC series of films. Yes, yes. Good old Hell House. The gift that keeps giving is what I I like to call it. (laughs) Congratulations on your your fourth film, the, the prequel. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, we released the fourth one, um, Hell House LLC Origins, the Carmichael Manor in October. Yeah, I think we released it on the 30th on Shudder and it's been doing really well. And, uh, and, you know, it's kind of setting up the whole, like, do we do a fifth one? Do we move on to the next one? So I think those conversations are kind of happening and we're going to sort of determine over the next month or so if, uh, if we're moving towards pre-production on a fifth one. Yeah. Were these planned to be a franchise or is it kind of one comes out and does well and then you guys start planning on the next one? So originally, um, it was always intended to be a trilogy. The first three were always kind of the plan of moving forward and having one, two, three, which is sort of the direction that we went. I think after we finished three, the plan was, and the hopes originally were, was we, we always talked about developing a show called The Abaddon Tapes. Um, so that was one of the things that we were going to kind of try to do. But I think we were moving towards, we, we don't ever want to move away from found footage because obviously found footage is the the bread and butter of it, but we sort of wanted to move a little bit into kind of a hybrid um, of found footage and uh, narrative. But f- to do that and also to do sort of like the Abaddon tapes being a prequel series, we'd have to be a period piece. We'd have to go back in time. We So we'd need a little bit more money than what we usually are shooting on uh, these projects because they're shot for very, very cheap shoestring type budgets. Um, so I think we were hoping to move in that direction. Uh, and then after, you know, the pandemic kind of slowed a lot of things down and we um, kind of made the decision that that's not going to happen. We're not getting kind of what we'd hoped for out of it. And then I think we both kind of moved, uh, Stephen Cognetti and I moved on and um, we worked on another project together. I know he's been writing and I've been working on different projects on my own. But then I think after about two years, we sort of got the opportunity again to make a fourth one. And the plan with the fourth one of calling it Hell House LLC Origins was not to do a prequel, but in essence to do continuations of specific stories that were kind of laid out over the original trilogy um, that touches on the origins and touches on. So there are elements of stories from before 
the whole Abaddon Hotel and the whole Hell House area, but basically having them live in present day and live on with newer frights and newer scares. And and we kind of had an opportunity to do that. And that opened the door for us to have the ability to say, okay, we could do one, we could do two, we could do eight. So I think probably this is kind of like a, we're sort of at a, do we do one for each different thing that we want to talk about or do we do a complete new trilogy? So that's kind of what we've been talking about and sort of what we've been playing around with. So, but yeah, this fourth one was never, I don't think intended to be a trilogy. It might turn into one, but not, not the original intention. Well, from the fan reviews I have been reading, They'll soon be asking you for part five because it's, <laughs> I know it's it's been a favorite of a lot of people I've been reading about. So congratulations on the success. Thank you. And I think, you know, one of the things that, not, you know, we, we obviously would not be successful without our crazy, awesome fan base. We have a, such an awesome fan base of people who love these movies. And um, we obviously want to keep giving them what they want. But at the same time, I think, you know, in terms of, you know, trying to like grow and trying to be a better artist and, and work within your, you know, what you're given at some point doing found footage for a very limited budget and sort of living in the same kind of world. I think we want to be a little bit more challenged and I think we want to grow and kind of step into newer things. So I think we're never going to kind of, you know, poo poo or, or, or look down on any of the stuff we've done. Cause we're really proud of all four of the hell house films, but I think both of us are kind of looking towards the future and hoping to get bigger opportunities to do larger scale projects, more narrative projects and kind of move in the direction, uh, in that direction. And hopefully at some point, maybe circle back to the Abaddon tapes. If we do get an opportunity to, to make something a little bit bigger with a, with a bigger budget that can kind of hold period pieces for the seventies, eighties and nineties. Great. That sounds awesome. Were you always a, a found footage fan? Nope. <laughs> no, no way. Um, so I, so when I, I believe when I was growing up, I, I loved slashers. Slashers were my thing. I love, I love the whole, you know, the big three. I love Friday the 13th, Halloween, and, and specifically Nightmare on Elm Street. But I wasn't really into found footage. The first found footage movie I saw, like a lot of people, was Blair Witch Project. And, um, I was really dizzy when I saw it. Like it was in theater. It kind of, it, it didn't scare me very much. And it kind of got me a little sick. Um, the thing that was brilliant about that film was the, you know, that was the beginning of dot coms and the internet. And they did such an amazing job of making people believe that it was real. And that aspect was really cool about it, but I didn't love it. It wasn't until Paranormal Activity when I realized, realized like how powerful found footage could be. And I think what Warren Pelly did with Paranormal Activity was the thing that scared me. Because the way I always describe it is, for me being from the 80s, you know, I think what Warren Pelly did with Paranormal Activity was what Wes Craven did with Slashers with Nightmare on Elm Street. Because, you know, Halloween was the original one created, and Halloween was the big scare in 78, and then everyone tried to replicate Halloween. And you as an audience member or me as an audience member, you can watch Halloween and then be like, okay, cool. It's not Halloween, so I'm safe. Or I'm not related to a serial killer, so I'm safe or something like that. Whereas with Nightmare on Elm Street, it was like, well, it's your dreams. Everyone has to dream. So it took what was scary about slashers and brought them into your home. And I think Paranormal Activity did the exact same thing. It took what was scary about Blair Witch and what was scary about oh, it's all the way in the woods. I'm not going to go searching for witches. I'm not going to be out in the woods in the middle of the night and be lost. And it took that and brought it into your home and the creeks and, and the house. So I, that was the first time I actually really appreciated found footage, but I still wasn't a fan. When, when Stephen Cognetti wrote the first Hell House, he was looking for a producing partner and he brought me on. 
And I told him right off the bat, I'm like, you know, this isn't my favorite genre, but obviously almost 10 years later, four films in, you know, I'm a student of film as well. So I dove into, you know, the, uh, VHS and I, I met the Vicious Brothers and and talked about Grave Encounters and you know so many other films that kind of have come from that and even now there's thousands of found footage films Lake Mungo's a great one Host is a good one Unfriended there's a lot of really great ones out there and I think because I started working in found footage I started you know educating myself and and getting more into found footage and it's a really powerful genre, but it's also a very forgiving genre. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think Hell House was always so successful was because when Steve first started making his first film, the found footage structure gave him the ability to make mistakes, but not have the audience recognize that they were mistakes. Cause like almost like the shittier it looks, the better it is. And, and, you know, like I rewatched VHS a few nights ago and the like cinematography in it is is like purposely awful but if you miss something the audience isn't going to know that you missed something and so uh i think it's a really powerful tool and i think it's a genre that i didn't realize was was so loved by fans and i think that you know if 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 we were four films later and i still said i don't like found footage there'd be a problem but i i really sort of um I, it was it was a gift. Like I said, Hell House is a gift that keeps giving because it helped me educate myself further as a horror fan and jump into subgenres and, and kind of really explore the power of using found footage or using a specific shooting technique to tell your story. Yeah, and you really took a found footage genre and made it your own because this doesn't come across as your standard found footage film. It's more of a documentary that somebody's Correct. watching. Yep. Which gives you a little more leeway because you don't have to have more expository dialogue because that can come in your your interviewees, your interview subjects throughout the film. So I thought it was a very unique way of tackling the the, the subgenre. Exactly. And we're both not afraid to tell people that, you know, a simple glitch will fix a lot of things in found footage. So the, the benefit of doing this, the docu style, I think, you know, the inspiration for uh, this film definitely comes from Lake Mongo, which is sort of a docu-style horror film that um, I think it's Australian. But um, uh, that whole, like you said, that ability of if you get to a certain point with the footage, with the actual found element of the footage, and you need to get from point A to point C, you can go film an interview with someone to kind of give you that exposition to get you from point A to point C. Where did you find this hotel, the Abaddon? Uh, so it, we found it in it's it's located in Lehigh in Pennsylvania. It's actually a haunted house attraction. It's called the Waldorf Estate of Fear. Um, it's ran by Angela Moyer. She's kind of been a blessing for this entire franchise. Um, I think before that, so Steve wrote the script before he met me, and he wrote it as a narrative script. And then he realized he's not going to be able to afford a narrative, so he wrote a pass as it being found footage. And then what he started doing was he started going around to different haunted house attractions because he realized he didn't have the budget to build a completely brand new haunted house attraction. So what he wanted to do was to find people that have regular fall haunted house attractions in the tri-state area and see if he'd be able to shoot in their like kind of off season. So he found the Waldorf and then he brought me on and then kind of we hit the ground run from there. And Angie um, was so incredible to work with because she had all of the props. She had all of the stuff. So a lot of the stuff was like, okay, 
in phase one, which is when they show up to the house, we just sort of cleaned a lot of that shit out. And then like a little bit later, like a week into them being there, it was like, we're just putting all the stuff up that exists, but like the trap doors, the moving walls, all that stuff like that was, you know, that's a gift because we had that stuff in there. And then the benefit, I would say this, I'm not sure if you're going to ask me about this, but I'll tell you the benefit of shooting in a small town is everyone is amazing in a small town and they want to help. And like, you know, if you shoot in LA, if you shoot in New York city, if you shoot in Atlanta and you walk up to someone and you're like, Hey, um, I need to shoot at a haunted house. Can I shoot at your haunted house? They're like, how much are you going to pay me? I know these movies are millions of dollars, so it's going to be a hundred thousand dollars or something crazy like that. When you get into a smaller town and you get into a community of people who don't really have filmmakers come through and stories come through, you don't get the, how much are you going to pay me? You get a, what can I do to help? Like, I really want to help. Like, this sounds fun and exciting and we want to be a part of this. Um, so we got a ton of production value. Like that entire opening sequence of the film with that whole massacre that takes place, that's probably like $2 million worth of production value with firefighters, with ambulances, with cops. And we got that all for free just because we were in a small town of people who really wanted to be a part of this. And, you know, that's, that's the great part about it is like now it lives out there. Now people love the film and those people can look at the film and be like, Oh, that's me in the line right there. Or I'm in the massacre sequence from this. And it's a little bit of theirs as well, which is always great. You get a ton of extras in that, that opening scene there. Yeah. You think we got 150 extras? Wow. For that? Yeah. And they were just crazy people who wanted to just be in a horror film and, you know, I think the number one thing that I've heard in my entire career is whenever I meet someone and they find out that either I worked on the Hell House films or I'm a horror filmmaker is they're they ask if they can get killed in my next horror film. So so there's there's not a, a short li- there's there's definitely a long list of people who want to be in a horror film and want to get killed in a horror film. So that that town had a lot of people who were just like, yeah, let's just do this. Let's have fun with this. That's what makes horror fans so great. You know, like they're. Their dream is to get killed on screen in a movie. That's just, that's just awesome. Not not too many genres have fans with that dedication. I mean, you want to know how twisted I am when um when I made my first feature, I wrote in a part for me that's only on screen for maybe like three or four minutes, but I wrote in a part for me to get killed because I wanted to see what my mom's reaction would be to me dot me dying on screen. <laughs> Talk about how twisted that is. <laughs> she must have loved that. One thing I like to see in your movies is that you often make cameo appearances. I do. Yeah, I definitely make a lot of cameos in the Hell House franchise. But um, you, you do have a great charisma. You definitely steal the scenes thank, that you're in. Thank you. Well, so in that in the Hell House franchise, the so it kind of it kind of worked out kind of to our benefit. So when we did the Hell House movies, I was kind of written. So I played kind of two parts in all of the Hell House movies. So the first part, which is when you see my face, and that's basically. In, in the first three Hell Houses, I play a cameraman in each one, and that's purposeful. It's because there's sequences. What we found is overshooting four of them, the first one and the third, um, first one and the fourth one, we completely had the cast shooting everything. The second one and the third one, we kind of did half cinematographer, half actor. But what we found is like the natural play of having an actor work with it played for a much better performance and a much better look. So what we would do is in the films, when there needed to be something that was specific, it needs to be shot a very specific way, or you need to catch a certain thing. Steve would write those roles and then put me in that so that 
I can play and have fun with everyone and kind of be this character, but also I can make sure I'm hitting the technical components of how I'm framing the shot to get what we need to get. And then it became a kind of a running joke after the second one that, that my character always gets killed in these things. And it took, it takes fan, it took fans probably until the third one to realize that it was me, the same person getting killed over and over again. So that's kind of the, like the fun one that we had. And then I play the clown. So the clown in the franchise is is also the clown. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, so that's been a lot of fun. I will say has to be a short list. Definitely top five creepiest clowns in cinema history. I'm uh, thank you. We, we appreciate that. It's funny because I think a lot of times with clowns, you go in a direction of like art, the clown or, um, or uh, Pennywise. Whereas like the clown is so over the top physical and funny and kind of like playing with you. And this kind of, we went in the completely opposite direction. Like we went with the clown that has like the stoic face. He's bleeding from his eyes and you almost never, ever, ever can read. It's kind of like, I, I forgot what the masks are called, but it's those masks where when you look at them, they never move. They're the same facial expression. But if you look at them in like one type of light and one like angle, it looks like they're smiling. And then if you kind of turn it in a different angle, it looks like it's frowning. It's kind of like that whole thing. Whereas mm-hmm. like we were able to build with lighting and with kind of the storytelling to make it so that, you know, is this, this clown is looking more and more menacing as different sequences are going on. So uh, that was always a lot of fun, but yes, I love to be in things. I, I think, Growing up, I was a performer. I always was in things. I think my my sense of storytelling is kind of my favorite part of being a filmmaker. So I kind of lean in that direction of being a filmmaker, writer, director, producer first. But yeah, any chance I can get to, to do something fun and be in it, I'm always going to take it. You had a great scene in, in Cabin Fear, which was, that yeah. was your first movie that you directed? Uh, yeah, so the movie was originally called Seclusion. And then I signed a deal kind of lost final cut on it and it be it got renamed cabin fear it got recut a little bit and then it wound up becoming sort of like a generic cabin in the woods movie and it was never meant to be that it was always meant to be a kind of mock of cabin in the woods movies so uh so unfortunately it didn't really come across the way i wanted it to come across uh luckily i am eventually i think this year i'm gonna put out uh, like a director's cut of what the original plan was for the film. But yeah, my 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 character is a douchebag in that movie. And uh, he definitely has a, a very specific murder scene that I feel like people would appreciate for an asshole character. It's a great film. I, I'm not going to give spoilers, but I definitely did not guess the ending at all. I'm usually pretty good at guessing guessing the mystery endings, but no, you did an amazing job with that. Well, I hope, uh, you know, when we when we re-release it, uh, I would love to hear your take on it because it's a very, very different movie if it has a little bit more comedy in it, which is what it was always meant to be. Okay. Where is the original? Is it streaming anywhere right now? No. So I actually had it pulled from everywhere because I wanted to, I, I originally, I bought the rights back to it and I really, I never felt like it reflected who I was as a filmmaker. Obviously, you know, you make mistakes. The filmmaker that I am today is a completely different filmmaker than when I made it nine years ago. But I wanted to have it reflect a little bit more of my style. So uh, so I bought the rights back. I had it pulled down. I think you can still buy it on DVD or Blu-ray or something like that. But in the US, it's mostly pulled down um, and it's going to hopefully be re-released in the next few months. Great. Uh, absolutely. Looking forward to that. 
Thank you. Thank yes. You. So back to the found footage discussion. So mm-hmm. very interesting that you were studying in the Paranormal Activity movies, which got you into the appreciation Amazing. of found footage. And you, <laughs> you directed the ultimate documentary on this franchise, Unknown it's Dimension. Very funny how that all came together because... Like I said, that was the movie that kind of changed things for me. And then I had an opportunity. That's actually how you and I met working on that together. But yeah, it was it was so uh, it was kind of surreal to kind of walk into that because, you know, usually first time filmmakers, younger filmmakers, people are doing found footage. You try to, you know, you try to the next project, do a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And, um, you know, I never thought of doing documentaries and uh, I sort of had a good experience with Nate Reagan on Hell House 3. And he kind of spoke to Anthony Massey about me and potentially being a good opportunity or a good option for them as a director. And so Anthony reached out to me and asked me if I would be interested. And I think by the time I sat down with him after that phone call, I had like a 40 page outline of how I wanted the story to look what I wanted it to look like in terms of like tying it to the paranormal activity movies, who I wanted to interview, what questions I was going to ask them. And, uh, and I think him and, and Rachel Belofsky, who were, uh, who were the two producers on it were pretty happy with what I did right off the bat. So they brought me on and then it was one of those things, you know, you, you start making a movie. I think we, we went to Paramount and asked them if they'd be interested in us making the movie and they weren't. So we were like, okay, what do we do? And Anthony's like, we're going to fair use everything. And we're going to go make this documentary. And we're just going to trust that, you know, things are going to work out. And we interviewed Oren, Katie and Mika. They were so gracious with their time. And, and you know, they, Katie and Mika gave me three hours each. Oren sat down with me for like five or six hours. And I was able to just really learn so much about the franchise and how they made the first film and, and what the process was. Um, and it really was sort of like a rags to riches story. So I, I became super invested. And then, you know, it was like one interview after the next. It was we'd get a few people. We'd get the cast of, of the marked ones. And then the cast of the second one would be like, hey, we heard you guys are doing this. And then one after the next after the next. And then before you knew it, I'm sitting, you know, in a house with Chris Landon. And I'm sitting at Blum House with Jason Blum and having these conversations. And it's like wow, like my career is taking me to kind of the next level where I'm in the rooms with these people talking about what they're doing and making a film about their movie. And uh, I was, it was such a great experience to work on it. I, I will say this, I'm still more of a narrative person. I prefer narrative films, but it was definitely a good opportunity of getting my feet wet in documentary and really getting a chance to kind of explore horror and meet so many, like, like I said, you and I met from that. I was able to continue and have a great relationship with Anthony, Nate, and Rachel. Uh, I, I started working with my editor, Nick Landa, and things kind of, you know, took off and we're continuing to work together. And then I have, you know, all these people that I'm, I, you know, either will work with, want to work with, or I've been inspired by that, um, you know, that I'm having these conversations with. So it was, it was a dream come true. It's a great documentary, not even for just horror fans, but I think filmmakers could find it inspiring how these guys went from, you know, very little money to having a franchise that's, what are we at, nine movies now, eight movies? What is it? How many is it? Is it seven? I think it's seven. Yeah, it's seven. Yeah, but no, you're, you're 100% right. It's, uh, it's, I think it's the ultimate, I, I, I agree with you, I don't think it's a horror 
documentary. It's more of a filmmaker documentary. And I think that was what I wanted to do because most of the documentaries that, <clears throat> that Anthony had produced, he was kind of, you know, he's done still screaming about the scream, the original scream trilogy. And I think scream four was coming out when they made that he did. Uh, his name was Jason about Friday the 13th. He did uh, one about Halloween. And I think the one thing that I noticed from when just being a fan and being a filmmaker was when you look at all of these other franchises and you look at all these big horror franchises, the people who wound up becoming major, like huge, like movie stars were the cast. You know what I mean? Like you have Kevin Bacon out of Friday the 13th. You have Johnny Depp out of Nightmare on Elm Street. Of course you have the filmmakers growing and, and kind of like continuing to do great things, but the cast are really the people that are like, Oh my God, everyone's looking at these people with, um, with, Paranormal Activity, it was the exact opposite. It wasn't Katie and Mika. It wasn't all of these casts that like, I think the biggest cast per the cast member in all of them was Catherine Newton, because she actually is kind of a big movie star now. But it wasn't the cast that was becoming these people that everyone was looking for. It was the filmmakers. It was Oren Pelly, it was Chris Landon, it was Greg Plotkin, it was um uh Rel Shulman and uh Henry Juice. It was all of these people who were kind of like when they started on paranormal activity, this was like the first or second project they were working on. And now in present day, they're making major, huge movies for Netflix or horror films for Blumhouse or so on and so forth. So I was really, really interested in telling that story because I thought it could be very inspiring for filmmakers to realize that like, Hey, you're going to get turned down a lot and you're going to get a lot of no's. And if you shut down and, and, and stop doing stuff because you get no's, your stuff's never going to be seen by anyone. And that's kind of what Oren did is he kept going and kept going and kept going. And, you know, it's, it's the ultimate keep trying, keep proving that you know what you're doing and keep moving forward. And eventually things will work out. Yeah. I highly recommend other filmmakers to check it out. It's on Paramount plus, correct? Yep. I think you can buy it or rent it on Amazon prime, but it's, if you subscribe to Amazon, uh, to Paramount plus it's there as well. Unknown dimension. Check it out. So you mentioned you wanted to get back into directing narrative films. Uh, you have a new film coming out later this year. Yeah. So uh, I produced a movie called 825 Forest Road. It's a <clears throat> it's sort of a little ghost story movie. We shot it in 2021. So it's been a minute since, you know, we, we were hoping that it would come out at the end of last year. But uh, we, we had to kind of move into the Hell House territory first. So um Hoping that comes out this spring. We're not really too sure, um, but we're we're kind of shopping it around right now. We just finished post about a month ago, so that that's the next big one coming out. And then I have two projects that I'm probably looking to direct, hopefully by the end of this year. So um, you know, hopefully in 2025. Well, you're going to see um, the remake or the not the remake, the remastered version of Seclusion will be out later this year and then hopefully early 2025 you'll be seeing another feature from me that hopefully will keep people a little scared excellent now we're looking forward to that thank you thank you all right we are now at the part of our podcast we have a little game called 13 Ooh. questions Oof. <laughs> and what this is is i ask you 13 questions no wrong answers whatever comes to your mind that's your answer i love it let's do it you ready? Yep. 13 questions with Joe Vendelli. Question number one. Favorite candy? Oof. I would say sour mambas. Wow. Okay. Favorite horror movie? 
Nightmare on Elm Street, the original, 1984. Favorite found footage film? Paranormal Activity. Favorite film director? Ooh, this one's tough. Um, It's going to be a combination between Wes Craven and John Carpenter. Favorite horror killer? Freddy Krueger. I mean, uh, that's a given. I'm a Nightmare on Elm Street guy all the way. And also, it's a, it's a killer with a personality, so that's always great. Gotcha. If you could make a crossover movie between any two horror franchises, which two would you cross over? Huh. Well, I think one of the franchises that I think has been dying to be crossed over with something has been Evil Dead. I'd love to see Ash in someone else's world, but I think... Probably, I would love to see what, you know, I would love to see like a Friday the 13th with Evil Dead combined in there. I think that would be really, really cool to see Jason go up against Ash. I'm, I'm a big slasher guy, like I said. So I feel like seeing, you know, some big bads go against one another and, you know, have a have a kind of person that represents good, but is kind of a little bit of an asshole going against someone that's just ultimate evil. I think that'd be fun. We almost got it years ago. I know, I know. Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash taking place in Christmas time. Right, that would have been fun. I think horror fans would have dug that, you know. I mean, listen, Freddy vs. Jason was not the best movie ever, but it was so much fun. It was like, you know, and, and at the end of the day, listen, I think the difference between horror movies and pretty much any other film is there's really two things that people are going for when they're watching a horror movie. Number one is, is it scary? If it's scary they're going to suspend a disbelief on a lot of things because the movie's ultimately terrifying. And then number two is, are we having fun? Like how, how often do you like, can you imagine like a serial killer going around and killing people and people rooting for that serial killer? Like that doesn't happen, but in horror movies, that's, that's what happens. So I think if you make a horror movie fun, if you make it fun and you make it scary, people will suspend a little bit of disbelief. We all cried when Michael went through the wood chipper last year. (laughs) Yeah, we did. (laughs) Yeah. But the cool thing about that Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash, they actually took the screenplay to that and made it into a graphic novel. I don't know if you've read that yet. I heard. I haven't read it. Have you? Yeah. Is it worth it? It was fun. You know, okay. it's, you know, it was truncated, of course, but yeah, it, it was fun. You know, you had some some good wise cracking from Ash, some cool yeah. set, some things that would have been really cool set pieces in movie form. Right. You know, unfortunately, I, I think we're past the state of seeing that. At this I agree. point of the game, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So if you can take any existing horror franchise and adjust it to being a found footage movie, which franchise would best be a found footage film? Ooh. Um, let me see. I feel like Saw would be an interesting one. It'd be really interesting because Saw is so built on like the you know, the, the, I guess the jigsaw killer kind of communicating to the people that he's kind of putting in these like tests or traps, um, what they did and how they can survive. Um, I think something interesting about live streaming that, I mean, they kind of do that in a couple of the movies for the cops, like in the second one, they're showing it on the security cameras, but I think an element of live streaming saw would be kind of a decent one that you can kind of play with found footage a bit. Yeah. I think Scream would be an interesting take because so much of Scream is based upon cell phones. 
I was thinking that. I just think the thing is, is Scream is already like meta on meta on meta. Like it's so, you know, I don't know if, if found footage would also work with Scream. It might work for a killer to, or a killer two. I don't think it would work for the whole movie. I guess we had the boy in four that was live streaming. So we, right. did, we did get elements out there, but yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. Next question. If you could pick any director to remake one of your movies, who would you choose and what movie would they remake? To remake one of my movies. Yes. Well, I would definitely remake Seclusion. Um, uh, that would definitely be the one. And I would pick Chris Landon because I think Chris Landon's the best genre horror director out there. So he's he's got the perfect blend of horror and comedy. And, you know, that's that's kind of someone that I've always looked up to in terms of the type of films and the type of stories I want to tell. So I would definitely pick Chris. If you weren't a filmmaker, what would you be? Jesus. Oof. What would I be? I don't know. I have a pretty, so this is going to sound like a douche thing to say. I have a pretty structured brain. So I kind of feel like I can fit into a lot of different, um, jobs and kind of, I think the real question is, is what would I do where I wouldn't want to kill myself in? Because (laughs) I I could do a lot of things. I just don't know if I'd enjoy doing those things. Um, I mean, there's a world where, you know, I used to play basketball. There's a world where I'm a professional athlete and that would be amazing to play basketball. Um, But man, maybe, oh man, maybe a teacher. I know that's not the the big one, but I I kind of feel like one of the things that, one of the things that I've learned in my career is, you know, you, you struggle so many times to kind of get to the next level or meet people that can sort of, you know, educate you and, and be sort of a mentor to you. And not a lot of people are willing to be like, let me help the next generation. So I feel like one of the things that I am trying to do as I'm still kind of moving along in my career is try to help younger filmmakers, give advice, talk to people, um, maybe even have them on set. So maybe a teacher, because I feel like I would want to to educate the next generation into maybe, maybe a film studies teacher. So I can teach people uh, to love horror films. <laughs> I love it. What's the best advice you have ever received? Uh, best advice. Oof. Um, you know, I, I sort of, I have a friend who, who, uh, you know, I, I worked with a little bit before um, on short films and, and small projects and they basically, you know, I, when I started writing, I, I'm from New Jersey. I, you know, I used to drink a lot. I was, you know, in a fraternity in college. I kind of lived that coming of age nineties styled, um, uh, life. And I love horror. And I think when I started writing and I started directing, dialogue was always really difficult for me. And I really, you know, I could put people in the right situation, but I didn't really know what they should say. And this guy said to me one time, he said, man, he's like, you know, half of the time when you're telling me stories about your childhood or college or anything like that, he's like, you make me laugh my ass off. He's like, why don't you stop writing characters that have to talk a certain way and write them the way that you talk. And I was like, I never really thought of that. I'm like, that kind of seems like the most obvious thing to do. But, um, and I think once I started doing that, that's when I started to see a little bit more humor and a lot of things start playing naturally in a lot of my scripts. And I think, you know, a piece of it, that, that ultimately the piece of advice is write what you know. And I think that was kind of invaluable for me because realizing that 
you know, you, I mean, listen, you, you make a movie, people are like, Hey, this is great. Like hell house, for instance, this is great. We love it. Your next thing is I want to do bigger. I want to do better. And I think a lot of times what I've done made mistakes for in my past is I've jumped 10 steps ahead and been like, okay, I made a $50,000 movie. Now I'm going to write and make a $5 million movie. And it's like, well, hold on, write a $500,000 movie, write a $300,000 movie, kind of live in that area and write things that are relatable to you. Um, write the struggles that you've had in your life and, and sort of, so that advice of, you know, write the way I talk um, was really interesting to me. And that helped me a lot. Great. Kind of piggybacking off of that for the next question. What advice would you give upcoming filmmakers? Easiest thing. Don't, don't stop. Don't quit. The whole battle of filmmaking and even acting is about, it's a battle of attrition. Like you are going to get knocked down. You are going to be told no. You're going to be told your stuff sucks. You're going to be told you're terrible. I mean, if the heart, if, if the documentary, the unknown dimension didn't tell you anything, you know, Oren Pelly got, every single film festival door shut in his face except one. And that's what opened the door for him. And it's, this industry is not about who's the most talented. It's not about who's the best storyteller. It's literally a combination of, can you tell a story? Do you have the right contacts? Do you know the right people? Do you have enough money? It's a combination of a whole bunch of things. And at the end of the day, luck is a major part of it. And if you get beat down because someone that, you know, you think you're a better filmmaker then gets a better opportunity and you don't get that and you're pissed off about that, that's never going to change. Like that is like, there has been people who are more successful than people who are more talented for as long as you can remember or know. It's really, you got to just stop worrying about what other people are doing and just focus on what you're doing and keep pushing forward and keep believing in yourself because the second you stop believing in yourself, no one's going to believe in you then. So that, that would be my piece of advice. Great advice. Great advice. Last question. Number 13. Number 13. Lucky 13. If you can go back in time and give a young Joe Bandelli advice, what would it be? So I'm not big on regret. I feel like, you know, if I go back in time and change something, it's the back to the future effect where now everything changes and all that kind of stuff. And I met my wife when I was supposed to meet my wife. I started filmmaking when I was supposed to be a filmmaker. All the things that I have today, I'm grateful for. And I feel like I made the right choice. But the one thing that has always stuck with me is I'm extremely ambitious. So I'm always, you always compare yourself to your peers and you always look at other people and say, okay, at this point in someone's career, where were they? Where am I? That, that kind of thing. One of the things that I think I, I, I'm really wish was a little bit different was I, you know, I was in sketch comedy groups and theater when I was younger and I wanted to go to film school and I was talked out of it by family. And I was just, you know, the conversations were, you don't know anyone who's successful in this field. It's too tough to make a living in this field. You should try to do something else. And ultimately I wound up, you know, going to a four-year college, getting a degree in criminal justice, working in finance and law enforcement for a little bit. And then I wound up going back to film school when I was 24 years old. So my first films started coming, my first films that I started like putting together with people were around the age of 24, 25. And I always think to myself, like, man, where would I be if I was starting to do that when I was 18 years old? Now, that being said, 
I think the fact that I did it when I was 24, when I was went back to film school, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wasn't like an 18 year old that like when I was 18 and I went to college, I got drunk. I did stupid things. I think if I was 18 and went to film school, I probably would have done stupid things as well. But so I do think there's a reason why I did it when I was 24 versus 18. But I do always think like I could have gone to a four year college. I could have studied a little bit more. I could have, you know, been by the time I was 24, had a feature under my belt or had a couple or something like that. And it would have changed a little bit of the progression of where I'm at. That's probably the one thing that I wish I did differently. And and ultimately the reason why I'd say that that's the one choice that I would make is because I'd listened to other people is I, I asked other people their opinion and I listened to them when they said, you, yeah, don't try. It's too hard. And that, that was probably something I shouldn't have done. I should have always listened to what I wanted to do and listen to myself. Right. Yeah. We are an accumulation of all of our life experiences. So it is, it's hard to say if I were to change this one thing, it's like the butterfly effect. Right. You don't want to mess up where you are now. So it's uh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like I always say, so I moved out to California. I'm in the process of moving back to the East coast. And I always say like, people are always like, well, why are you leaving? Why didn't you like, did you not like it? And I'm like, no, I love it. I'm going to try to be bi-coastal. I'm going to try to go back and forth and do that whole fun thing. But if I never moved to the West coast, I never would have met my wife. And that's like, okay. I mean, it doesn't matter if I had the worst career experience in Los Angeles or the best. I met the best person I've ever met in my entire life by deciding to move out there. So any decisions that I made in there that were right, wrong, or whatever, doesn't matter because like you said, the butterfly effect, if I didn't move out here, I probably wouldn't be married to my wife. So, you know, you, you, you kind of, you, I could go back and change some things, but if I change some things, I probably would lose certain things that I, that make me who I am today. So try not to live with regrets. Yeah. I always look back to about 2008. I had the worst job I've ever had in my life and completely was miserable, you know, yeah. but that really sparked me to start doing my short films, which years, a decade later, leads to what I'm doing now. So without that right. really awful, miserable job, I might not have had that inspiration or that motivation to do the lifelong goal, you know? So right. exactly. Yeah, butterfly effect. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, that was it for 13 questions. And unfortunately, this comes to the end of our podcast. No. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, it's been a really, yeah, it's been a real pleasure you having you on and you've been very, very helpful for other filmmakers out there. You have a great story. You're a, you. an awesome storyteller and I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it was good to catch up with you. And uh, when I do come back on the East Coast, maybe we can catch up in person. Absolutely. Definitely. Awesome. And where can we find you on the socials? So I'm at the, at the chosen Joey on Instagram. Um, I think I'm Joe Bandelli on Facebook. I rarely go on X. I'm honestly, I'm, there's another piece of advice for someone else. Stay off social media. Cause you're going to compare yourself to everyone and you're going to drive yourself crazy. Cause you're going to have not have all the things you want. So you can find me. Instagram is probably the one you can find me on the most, but I am doing everything in my power to stop looking at social media. I understand. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you very much, Joe. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I hope you guys enjoyed our interview with Joe on this week's episode of the Scarcity of Horror Podcast. A tremendously talented guy who continues to put out amazing work. I look forward to seeing Joe's upcoming films. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Check back next week for another great horror conversation. If you're new to the show, take a listen to our previous episodes to hear discussions with a variety of horror filmmakers 
as we discuss the genre that we love. Follow us on Instagram at scared underscore stiff underscore films for behind the scenes photos and videos of our productions. Happy New Year, and I'll see you guys next week. Mm-hmm.